If you or a loved one need mental health assistance or are experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. G'day everyone and welcome back to another podcast with uh, FYI, all things mental wellness. I'm here with Nadia and uh, this morning we're actually going to introduce our guest who's a local boy, a footballer, a coach, a businessman, a motivator, a sports commentator and a fundraiser. He's an avid camping, fishing, fresh air enthusiast, a father, a husband and a journeyman. He played 222 matches for the Akandanda Roos, including in the 2000 Premiership. He also played another 60 matches for Colcan, and after being told as a boy that he would not even play a contact sport. He rides push bikes, participates in ocean swims, and has a general passion and infectious enthusiasm for life. He's the owner of Camper Trailers Aubrey Wodonga with his wife Linda, and I'm proud to count him as one of my dearest friends. Welcome, Scott Fraser. That was an introduction. That, yeah, thank you very much. You've done some great research. Well, a little bit, well, man. It's good to be here on the couch with both of you. There's Thanks. one thing that I haven't done, though, in my research. People call you Scooter. Yes. How'd that come about? Well, I guess it's funny because most Scots generally get called Scooter. But uh, back in year nine, oh, I had a new pencil case at Billabong High School. And <laughs> and one of, the, one of my mates at the time... Went to write my name on it because I didn't have my name on it, and he put two O's in Scott. So you became Scoot. Yeah, S C O Double T. Okay, it's not a really, yeah, it's not a great story or anything like that. It was I thinking that yeah, you were, you know, king of the half pipe with your with your scooter because you put a handle on a skateboard or something. Yeah, it wasn't a Samuel Johnson story. Went around the country. Yeah, he went on a unicycle. I went on a scooter. It wasn't anything like that. That's it was all insane. with a pencil case. Mate, that's awesome. You, so your main claim to fame locally um, is obviously footy when it comes to it in the in the back in the day, as they say. So what was that, 2014 when you hung up your boots? Was that about right? Yeah, fame's probably the, not the, well, the operative word, Infamy? Well, no, it wasn't. Yeah, look, a lot of people have played football. I played a lot of football and very lucky too. In the end, I was lucky with... Yeah, 18 years of footy, but um, yeah, I guess, no, don't claim any fame to it. I just played at a good club for a while and made some very good mates and um, learnt a lot along the way. Grew up. I say I grew up. I, I born and bred in Colcan, but I grew up at Yak and Dander. So when, how old were you when you went to Yak? Uh, middle of 98, I come into Wodonga and then started at Yak in 2000. Right. Met a few blokes that were involved with Wodonga Raiders and one being Dale Smith, who's a Yak local. Mm. He left Raiders and went out to Yak and in February of that year, only just on the eve of the season, rang me up, want to play? I needed a change, which we'll probably get into. Mm. February, that's the second month. Six months later, because everything was brought forward in, in 2000 for the Olympics, we won the grand final on the 26th of August. There you go. Which is very- <laughs> Unusual. Very unusual, but yeah, a great time mm. and uh, good memories. What was the culture of the club like when you went there? It was it was awesome. There were a lot of married guys with families. There were a lot of couples. There were a lot of us that were single. The the club itself, we'd we'd be lucky 
not lucky, I guess unlucky to get less than than 45 on the training track on any Tuesday or Thursday night. The, wow. the, the seniors and the reserves had, there was some sort of click that just everyone was together. I guess back then, it seems weird, 20 years ago, the, a, a culture, and it wasn't a, a drinking culture or a bad sort of thing. And I guess back then there were no mobile phones and no things were a little bit easier back then. No, less distractions. But, um, you know, our coach, Ross Headley at the time, wasn't real strict on it. You know, if we left the, the bottom pub at Yak on a Thursday night after selection before 10 o'clock, that was a pretty early night. But it wasn't about drinking, it was about being together. Mm. And it was it was crazy. The, the The netballers were all involved as well and um, and I think Yak and Dander as a club as well over the years has had that, the, the moulding of it's not uh, an us and a them with the footballers and netballers sort yep. of thing. And that was about the start of it when it when it really started to turn, which is good because I uh, met Linda there and we- She was a netballer. Bought, she was a netballer, started in 2002. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, brought both our girls up uh, sitting on the steel benches watching me play footy and Linda play <laughs> netball yeah. for, for quite some time. So the club was your family? It was. Because your folks are in Colcan? Yeah. Yeah, mum and dad, uh, you know, I grew up in Colcan and I was so mum and dad still there. It's not, it's not, you know, many hours away. It's not an easy jump just to say, hey, mum and dad, come here. Come no, here. but the best thing on my side, I suppose, with that support, you know, I never wanted to move to a city. My older brother spent 21 years in Alice Springs as a school teacher and my younger brother moved to Melbourne. So, oh, Brendan was playing footy in Bendigo, so it was a long trek to watch Brendan play footy, um, out of the question to watch Danny in Alice Springs. So yeah, they a lot of support for me, and um, probably more than any th- out of the three of us, I needed at the most at, at a young age. Yep. Yeah, it was good to have them along at all those games, and and obviously they'd come along and look after the girls. And Dad always, um, Dad always uh, says this: the thing that he watched more games of Linda's netball than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you credit your parents as watching 150 plus of your 200 odd games yeah yeah i reckon they, they would have that's yeah a, that's an incredible that's a huge effort it? from cold yeah. can to yak and dand yeah, out, of, out of yeah 200 and something games it um what's that an hour's drive mm. yeah oh, at least yeah 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 they 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 i guess pull up from going to meter on a wet day <laughs> they'd, they'd ring up and say no nah, mate we'll uh, we'll stay home fair enough um but yeah they Go they were great, games. great support. Yeah, yeah oh, nearly every home game, yeah. they were they were really welcomed into the into the fold at Yak. There's some people that Dad knew when he was playing football back in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, Dad's claim to fame is he played in the grand final in the reserves, mm-hmm. and then went on to be sort of an administrator for the for the next thirty or forty, I suppose, wherever he was. Your dad yeah. fits in though, doesn't he? He's, I mean, I've, and I've met your parents. Yeah, they're beautiful I, people. It, it, he just fits in. Yeah, I, I sort of make the joke to uh, to you know yourself and some of my, some of my really good mates that I think some of my dad likes my mates more than me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, um, if if you're in at my place for a beer and dad rocks up, there's there's just nothing different. Yeah. It's like he's another one of my mates, and um, that's oh, a, that it goes is back an a long way. Astounding thing. Yeah. Um, like every bloke, there's a period where you go from daddy to dad and the hugs and the kisses and no more I love yous and all that. And 
there's a gap now where then there's no hugs and kisses. Yeah, he still doesn't like a hug, but he, he's just he's one of those people. Like he, yeah. I think Dad invented COVID, so nobody <laughs> <laughs> couldn't touch. Mind him. you, he loves the girls giving him a hug, but yeah, he's not a he's not a blokey hugger. But yeah. um, you know, he he didn't have the upbringing that that he would have liked. I suppose his um, upbringing was was different. And I remember very early days that he, I think we might have had a bit of an argument, which you know, early days, uh, you know, as a teenager, I. Probably caused them. You were not headstrong. Um, I think he was trying to explain to me. He just said, "I want to be the father that I never had. So if I'm a bit tough, so be it. But I want to be fair." Mm-hmm. And I think that's rubbed off a little bit, quite a lot. <laughs> At the end of the day, you are the parent. You do need to be the one who sets the rules. You do need to to do all those things. But if you can do that in a way where you're not the tyrant. I suppose. As kids, we look at our parents and often we think they're tyrants. But overall, they've got your best interests at heart, no matter what mm. that is. Um, so, yeah, for him to be able to convey that to you, that's mm. amazing. Yeah, I mean, he's got pretty good guidance from mum. He does what he's told. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're, they're a great team. How yeah. do they go when – because background, pre-footy, pre-everything, when you were a kid, you had a bone disease in your legs. Is that right? Yeah, I, I guess so. My – you guys have called it mental wealth, uh, mental wellness. Mental uh, wealth is a Yeah, well, that's too. what I've wanted to call it because I think your, your mental health, everything's in your head. Mm-hmm. It's like a bank account. You can be really topped up but still not happy, and it can be really rock bottom but you might be on top of the world. So oh, I like that. Mental wealth, let's just, you know, that's just my take on it. It's, yeah. yeah, we can call it mental um, wealth for today. No, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, mental wellness. Um I don't even know where I was going. We were talking with that. about you, you as a said, kid. Yeah, I, I get yeah. So and, and your so that's mine, where obviously. that's where my journey starts. And like I was saying off air, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a superstar footballer or tennis player or whatever. Everyone's got a story. Mm-hmm. Mine started. Oh, I was a really happy-go-lucky young bloke. I captained the under-13s cricket side at Colcairn. I think it was ninety-one, might have been, and then. In that 13th year, playing footy, dad and the coach and everyone recognised a bit of a limp and in the end I had to go to, to see a surgeon, did all that sort of stuff with the physio and they didn't know what was going on. And I had two appointments in Albury on a Tuesday evening after school. I'm pretty sure it was March 92 or 91. Right. I'm not really, it's not, don't be fussed about dates, no. but it's just something that it, it sticks in my head that I had an appointment with Peter Harper, the dentist, at 4.30, and I walked out of there crying because I was told I had to have braces, and I had to go around the corner into North Street, and, sorry, from there into Wise Street to uh, Ian Pike, the orthopedic surgeon, mm-hmm. and his words were, you shouldn't play contact sport again, do not run. Do not do anything that could cause your legs to uh, to have any impact. Wow. I had a bone disease called osteochondritis desiccans. Oh. Obviously, the desiccans desiccated. Mm-hmm. So the bones were from my in, in my kneecap, basically, the femur and mainly the femur. They were just- Falling apart. Falling apart. Yeah. And the x-ray showed that it just looked like somebody would sprinkled coconut all in there. And, uh, yeah, five arthroscopes later, and uh, that was about by the time I was 18. I had my last arthroscope when I was 18, I think it was. And 
I had started, well, so the whole thing was I didn't play football for three years, 14, 15, 16, and I was allowed to go allowed to go back. He thought I was right in the last year of under-17s. Then it came back again, but no cricket, no tennis. So if you can imagine growing up as a young boy in a town where um, pretty much everyone played sport. Because there's not much else to do. Not much else to do. Yeah, computers weren't around then. I I ended up quite ostracised, I guess. All my mates were playing sports, so I'd rock up to school. There's no visible... Nothing wrong with you, Nothing mate. I didn't have a cast on my leg or anything like that. It's You're just soft. It, it was just... And it was, yeah. So then started, I guess, a turnaround of my personality. Bernie, you know this because you're probably the first person that I... I guess after 25 years at the age of 39, I, I don't know where it came from, but I started to assess how and why it happened. You know, why certain people went out of my life, why I was like I was. From 18 to 23, I was always wanting to be the, the first in the bar and the last one to leave. I just never wanted to miss out, simply for the fact of the, the bullying from 14 to 17-ish, I suppose, going to school and spending recess and lunch huddled away in the library so I didn't need to be near anyone that was going to pick on me because I was just... I was an outcast. You were different. Is that because, oh, sorry, excuse my ignorance, but was that because you weren't able to do those things that you were once doing? Yeah, so, so a Tuesday afternoon in summer, yeah. you'd, you'd, leave, you'd go home from school, yep. get on your bike and go to cricket training. Mm-hmm. you do that on Thursday and then on Saturday mornings you'd play cricket in the morning, tennis in the afternoon or when you got to 16, over 16, you, you played cricket in the afternoon for the mm-hmm. B grade or whatever. In the winter, it was footy. So I was So it was, was that disconnect yeah, that- totally, totally disconnected <clears throat> from everything that I had right up until that age of 14. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in there, I had always loved swimming. So I, in the summer, I just took it upon myself to uh, put my head down. And when you're in the water, you can't hear anything. And my pop had introduced me to golf when I was about 11. So I went out on Sundays and played golf with all the old blokes at Colcan. So I think now that's probably something later in my life is the reason why most, of, nearly all of my mates are older than me. You have that so connection. That, that you, connection, yeah. You learned yeah, I, at a young age and a young vulnerable age. I matured yeah. in that way, but in another way I was, I, I, I think I, can't remember when I actually said this at my 40th, a lot of people just didn't know what, what had happened, but I, I told everyone the story that, that I had, I guess, blurted to Bernie after I'd worked out what had happened in my life, that I, I became a problem person, not a problem child. I never got into drugs, but I think, and I, I, I use the word prick humour, I probably offended a lot of people, I became mm-hmm. judgmental. Well, and you were a bit to, self-destructive, do you reckon? Yeah, to, to a point. You know, I, I moved into Wodonga in 98 and worked at Edwards Tavern and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be wrong to go to bed at four or five in the morning and then sleep until two o'clock till I had to go to work. I didn't do a lot for others. I was pretty, pretty selfish and I, I look at that now, you know, and I guess it, the whole admitting the situation is what came to me in my thirty eighth or thirty ninth year and then and worked it out. So there's no blame game. I don't say, oh, because of my knees and the the bone disease 
that this happened and then they picked on me and I became an asshole. Mm. And that's why I lost friends and I was a judgmental person. And well, I- well, it is the reason why, but it's it's not blaming. It's it's understanding how you got to that point. Would that be fair? Yeah, oh, exactly. And I look at yeah my my two girls and Linda. And when you look at it at chronologically, if, if this didn't happen at this point, it wouldn't have led to that. So nineteen ninety one versus two thousand and one. Yeah, a ten year period where if I didn't have the bone disease. Yeah, who knows? I, I wouldn't say mm-hmm. that I would have gone on to play AFL because I probably didn't have the the ability or the the commitment. But I might have moved away for footy if you know, mm-hmm. which just sure. could have been something. I I went to Yakandanda for a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, it was twenty minutes down the road as opposed to no freeway back then too. So, mm. Colcam was an hour and a quarter away. Yeah, so look, yeah, there's no blame, but the admitting of it. And I keep pointing to Bernie when I say this because he's been a big part of it. Is assessing the situation, taking ownership, not giving a shit about the cause. Mind you, I've still got some of those bits of bone at home in a in a <laughs> bottle, and I look at them <laughs> every now and then. You bastard! But um, yeah, and then I went on to play eighteen years of just local level footy. Yep. Luckily enough to win a premiership that first year at Yak. Played in another grand final ten years later, and. Coached a little bit, but just thoroughly enjoyed That's the whole incredible. Area. Um, 18 years of, of playing football, irrespective of what level and what standard after what you dealt with is, is amazing, Scott. Well, the message I see, the message out of all of that that I see, is that no matter what life dealt you or us mm-hmm. or anybody, that it does form who we are, but it doesn't solidify who we are. No. You can make a change. You can do look differently. You can that watershed day when something goes snap and you go, I need to have a think about what I'm doing here in life and where I want to go mm. and where I want to be and who I want to be. Mm. You know, your past, whether that be good, bad or otherwise, doesn't define who you are when you die. Yeah. At the yeah, end exactly. of your journey at the end of your journey, you know, lefts and rights all the way along. Mm. You know. I'm I'm taking it that, you know, at some point you went, I need to move for a change of scenery, as you said, out to Yak. It wasn't bad all the time. No. I, I I guess I pinpoint a time, year 11 at high school, so I finished in 96, so, yeah, 95, my first ever real girlfriend, Michelle. She was, you know, in a time where I, at that stage, where I just didn't know who I was, I didn't, you know, um, it, was, it was tough, and all of a sudden someone wanted to love me. It was, you know, it was crazy. And I haven't seen it for a long time, but you know, it's it's when you look back on your life, it's like, wow, I, you know. And she was gorgeous, mm-hmm. and at that time, it was probably that that boost I needed because from the from fourteen to sixteen and a half, I felt like a nobody, mm. and then that happened, and then you go your separate ways after school. I was a year older and all that sort of stuff, and we were together for a while, and then I had that, I went back into it, I guess, of that trying to find who I was. And then at 23, Linda comes along. So I've had those changes and I wasn't always a shit person. It's just moments in time and mm. I guess you get reputed for, for certain things. And you say on the footy field, you know, I never did anything bad on the footy field. It was always played to win. Probably came across at times where, <laughs> which is contrary to my beliefs, but um, a lot of people thought that I thought I was better than everyone, but I was actually always of the, th- the thinking to myself, 
that I was at the bottom trying to work my way to the top. Dad always said to me about things, you know, if you if you're playing sport or doing something, if you can't do it real well, at least look like you are. So maybe I was probably a little bit overzealous at footy and trying to go a bit too hard and be a little bit cocky in the fact that, you know, trying to, I guess, the peacock, put the feathers up and look like like you're tough. But inside you're thinking, oh, holy shit, am I as good as, you know, should I be here? Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's an incredible. That's an incredible journey. And I know off air we spoke about you were concerned about your introduction not being as <laughs> as exciting as some of the other guests. I mean, I was blown away and not knowing your story, Scott, prior to pretty much today. It's incredible. But what I'm more interested in is your journey from, or 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 how your journey and what you did to begin your journey to mental wellness. How did you work your way through it? Like you've told us that you you divulged to Bernie for the first time, but how did you get to that point? Well, what did you do? Uh, gin. A lot of gin. Oh, gin. no, well, let's go back to being 14 and yeah, having that taken yep. away from you. Head down, bum up. I was crap at maths. Three months into it, I'd sit at the front right corner. Pam Mills was the teacher, and I got 100% in an algebra test. And I got home that day and I was like, they're going to think I cheated. (laughs) (laughs) But you can engross yourself in things when you need to. So I mentioned the swimming and the golf. You know, uh, I had no coach. We had a 25-metre pool out at Colcan, but I made it to state twice just because there were probably not many other boys at that age. It wasn't cool for boys to swim. There were two girls out at Colcan that were really good swimmers, lived really close to the pool, so they were great training partners, Kimberly and Allison, and they both went to state. So literally head down, bum up, and watch watch the black line. Would that be fair? You shift your focus. Footy's been taken. Cricket's been taken. Let's shift my focus to swimming. So did that, and then in winter it was golf. And to take to get myself away from footy, my uh, dad was – goal umpiring with the Aubrey Umpires League. So he'd, my younger brother would play wherever Colcan played in the Hume League that day. Then we jump in the car. Dad had dropped me at Jindra. No matter where we went, we detoured via Jindra. Um, the Mackey family had the general store, and I worked there basically from midday till 8 o'clock. When Dad would drive back through, he might have gone to Mitter or Yak to goal umpire, come back through. That was to get myself away from the not being able to play footy. Mm. If I wasn't there, I mm. wasn't thinking about it. So the Mackey family were a huge part of that. And then on Sundays, I play golf, which I think in 1995, I won the club championship out there. Not a huge golf club. So And, and again, it's it's I was ne- I'm, haven't been a great golfer, but I loved it mm. and got to a point where I just love being out there. Yeah, you can you play with a I say an old bloke, they were probably my age. <laughs> but, uh, you know, being 12, 13, 14 and, and playing golf with 40 to 70-year-olds, I guess your etiquette, your attitude, everything had to change, you know. If you cracked the shits and looked like throwing a club, it'd be like, They corrected you. You know, it's only a game. You've only played, only paid five bucks to be here, it's, you know. So mm. that was a growing up that, that really was part of that journey. Mm. Um, and again, a small town, they all knew why I couldn't play footy and, well, not all, well, the golf side did. 
a lot of people didn't understand. Again, like I said, there was no visible things other than when I ran and looked like a baby camel, I suppose. <laughs> At least <laughs> going everywhere. Oh, it was just shocking, yeah, buckling underneath me. But that journey took place, you know, and, and I, I said about the first girlfriend at Billabong and then in 96, that changed me as in the relationship and mm-hmm. tried to knuckle down into school and I was the vice captain of Billabong in 96 in that last year. So things were on the up and that was a good thing to, you know, I engrossed myself in school and a relationship, which at that age. That's was, healthy. Yeah. So I, I, she was a great support. I was I, I've to never say told that. her that. No, I was about to say you know, that. She's though. married to a great bloke and got a couple of kids and, you know, I've, you know, she still lives in Henty. Because you don't just go from being a cocky, smart-ass young bloke who needs an attitude adjustment potentially to being a good bloke overnight. Somebody helps you with that. Yeah. She must oh. have been an incredible person at the time, at that age, to ground you to a certain degree. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And I've never met the woman, but uh, I'm guessing that she's, uh, you know, her insight into you must have been incredible at the time. And It'd I think- be good to bring it up with her. <laughs> <laughs> send her, a, send her a copy of this. Um, and then five years later, I'd well gone backwards, I suppose, and Linda came along. Mm-hmm. So that was, it was all over again, and that that grounding um, knew who I was get the best out of you, that sort of thing. I probably wasn't the easiest boyfriend for her early, but we, we came around. You've made up. You've made up for that. Oh, yeah. Don't. <laughs> you make Linda out like she's an angel. She is. <laughs> I'll set him up for that. No, I'm yeah. sorry. Right, Actually, comment. funny you say that because I read something out to her before I left this morning. I said the two blokes sitting at the bar having a, having a chat. One bloke looks at the other and says, my wife's an absolute angel, mate. And he goes, oh, you're lucky. Mine's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a great relationship and a, a lot of our friends, you know, I guess have wondered why Linda's had some friends that have gone through some terrible marriages. Uh, Linda would go to dinner with those girls and come home and just go, wow. <laughs> I'm um, lucky. Yeah, we, well, we're lucky. I wouldn't say Linda's lucky. You work on it together <laughs> though, don't you? We always have, yeah, and I think that's what I needed from that point of view very early days. Um, it sounds like women were very influential to help you on your journeys, but however, you're still you, so you must have been ready to make those changes yeah. as well. To be fair to yourself, you know, it's not one person that changes you. It may be one person that allows you to make some changes in your life. Would, mm, and funny you, you say that because I haven't mentioned my mum much. She was more the driving force. Our dad dad uh, worked. He was a linesman, electricity, and uh, in the in the morning dad would go to work at 7 o'clock. So we'd never seen before school and then after school you'd do your jobs. And So mum was always there, a, a very good guy. But and growing up in Colcairn, things were only two k's away at the most. So, mm. you know, we were never driven to school and never babied and you rode your bike every bloody where. It was mm. just, um, they always say your mum's the your first first woman you love. Mm. Like I said, she, um, dad would be nothing without her and so would we, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, without a doubt. But she'd never been a... A harsh taskmaster, or you know, when you look back, you know, mum was, you know, mum was a a cranky mum or anything like that. She was, she was a really good guide, 
her mum, or my mum's dad um, passed away uh, when she was two. So she only ever had her mum. So she had a really good guide as well. My nan was a, a beautiful person. So yeah, you, look, you only have to look at that, and I've mentioned you know, there's three four, three great women three in your life, women, or yeah. four great women in yeah. your life. Absolutely, it's it's a huge, it's, huge support, and that's not necessarily different in anybody's life. No. Where the, where the mum's the main caretaker, the dad has the role to go and earn and support, and and sometimes that means they've got to be away from home to do that on a regular basis, and it then becomes a very difficult thing for men to talk to their parents, uh, especially their father. Um, they may have a much better relationship with their mother because yeah, they're just around all possibly. the time. Yeah. Do you have that good relationship with your dad? I mean, I know you've got a great one with your mum. I've watched you together and you bounce off each other and she's, you know, she's spirited and it's good fun. Yeah. Um, like I said with dad, he didn't have that guidance from his father. He was always around, but it was just never that, that loving side of things for mm. dad. But Dad had his own issues back in, I was just before or just after Izzy was born in 2008, I guess issues with within our family, my older brother and his, his family, that Dad slipped into his own depression and there'd be days where he'd come in, Mum and Dad look after Izzy on every Wednesday, they'd come in from Colcan and Linda would go to work and it'd be great. I'd get home from work and they'd be playing and it'd be great. But then all of a sudden Mum rang one day and said, We've got to come back. And so I come back and mum came in and said, oh, I just need you to come out and talk to dad. I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, been a while, but every time we leave here, he's basically crying before we get to the golf club mm -hmm. 400 metres down the road. So it was sort of like his day was great on Wednesday and then as soon as they drove out of our street, it was like, oh, the whole thing, you know, and the weight of the world came back. Well, he had, you know, he's got us and his first grandchild and his other grandchild and older son were, you know, a long way away. Brought up things with his childhood, so we've dealt with that. You know, I remember saying to him, and we've had some. When I say some, I think there's five suicides on either side of mum and dad's family, be it returning from Vietnam or or other things. So that was the first thing I said to Dad. <laughs> Jesus, I hope you're not thinking of that. Yep. Yeah, my cousin in June at the age of 16 took his own life. And I, I, I despised that back then, and that was one of those things too. I was in that stage, and I thought, Nathan, you selfish little bastard. Absolutely. You know? But I learned a lot. Um, his grandmother, my auntie, absolutely tore strips off me the next Christmas for not going to his funeral. But I was, I was 17. Back then, it was just something that, holy shit, why would you do that? Yeah. Mm. Here we are two years later, and uh, no longer than that. Um, I know what it's all about. Talk dad all the way through, you know, and he, he never had any tendencies. He didn't want to do that. There was too much to life mm -hmm. for him. But he's I wouldn't say I've ever been depressed. Of you know, I guess you, you worry the crap out of yourself with certain things and, you know, uh, I guess looking back at that, that three-year period at school and the bullying and all that, there was so much to live for. You know, you, you find golf, swimming, girls, whatever. Did it give you a resilience? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I find it hard now with, with Caitlin and Izzy because I did so much myself, I forced myself to do things and accomplish things, I find it hard to level with them that 
I see them give up, mm. but they're not giving up. They're just challenge. You know, it's a challenge, and I just think, how can you not bloody do this? But I think that's my high resilience because of what happened to me over that time. That I don't understand what the girls are going through now with their little mm. little for bits. sure, and, and a different. A different time to be growing up as well. Like you said before, you wanted to go anywhere. You got on your bike. You, we, we were almost raised in a, in a time where we had to be resilient. Would you agree with that? Opposed to now, there's a lot more information out there. There's a lot more resources. Things are a little bit, can I be controversial and say easier for them to give up? If I'm not good at that, I'll do that. Well, there's nothing to do, so they pick up an iPad. That's right. Um, we have a, and we're not strict, but we, we have a lot of family time. Um, as Bernie knows, Caitlin, our youngest, we're going camping next weekend at Midder. And if I said that I, I can't go that first night, I'll come up later, she'd want to stay home. It, it's either got to be 50 50 or the whole lot. I've got it. Someone's got to be with you. Someone's got to be with mum, which is beautiful, frustrating at times. So you say easy, I think it is. I, I mean, part of the part of growing up was you had to have breakfast. It was optional to come home for lunch, but you'd jump on your bike and you had to be home before the streetlights come on. Yeah. Mm. You know, so anyone from that age of 35 and above knew what knows what that rule is. And there was I a think, consequence if you didn't. Oh, shit, shit. Mm. <laughs> Mum Kids came these out days. dad came out. It was more dad was the giver of, in my house at least, dad was the giver of, of the strap. If, yep. if it was that bad. It was the wooden spoon otherwise from mum's top drawer, which broke often on my brother's butt. But, um, yeah, dad was the giver. And there were consequences. You, if you weren't home when they said you should be home, you yeah. got it. I, um, at one stage, made it even worse for myself. Year nine woodworking, I made a wooden spoon. And shit, it was <laughs> the strongest wooden spoon. <laughs> you dumbass. Mum still got it. <laughs> It, it wouldn't break. There's no, and I still, when we, when we go out there and they've built a beautiful new home, you know, in late 60s and decided to build a home out there, then pride of place in the second drawer is uh, is my wooden spoon. Yeah. <laughs> it never broke on my butt. I just go back to the maturity that you had or the ability to draw on some sort of inner strength when you were talking to your dad. You know, that day where mum said, come out and talk to dad, mm. he needs you. I, I'm struggling to wrap my head around how you could have that conversation with him. I mm. I don't know. I can't remember what I said other than I certainly hope you're not thinking about taking your life mm. because I reckon Linda might have been pregnant with Caitlin at the time and I knew everything that was going on externally but didn't know the effect that it was having on dad. Mm. And following on from that, my older brother's also had his own uh, issues. Journey. Um, again, no no terrible uh, ideas or things like that, but um, he, went, he went and did Kokoda by himself, and I, I really question this after he slipped off a wooden bridge three or four days in, severely injured. They left him with a Sherpa, got him back into town, and he had no one. So he'd lost his wallet, his backpack, all went in the river, all that sort of stuff. He had no passport. And he was stuck there for something like nine days in some hospital. He didn't know what was going on. 
And he goes on to tell some pretty horrific stories about strip searching and all that sort of stuff. And we weren't um, estranged, but he lived a long way away. Mm. And I just said to him, when, when he came out and told us when he got home, he was in a pretty bad way, I would have I would have gone and done it. If someone walked along the street when we leave here today said to me, I'm going to do Kokoda by myself, I'd say, don't be stupid. I'll save up and we'll do it together because you shouldn't do something like that by yourself. But Danny never understood. He just wanted to do it for himself, by himself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was yeah, another part of that left-field part of my life. That mm. And this whole time... Like I said, um, it was only three years ago that, that I started telling people what I had gone through. And I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, I'm a strong person, very, very emotional. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not into star signs, and apparently all that's been thrown into chaos now, but a few of my friends, their their wives are into it, and they all say, oh, it's because you're a Libra and all that sort of stuff. Well, I just think it's because I'm human. Too mm, <laughs> right. So we had that chat that night. Where in, a, we, in an old church converted into a house in Shepparton, <laughs> drinking did. tonic and gin. You can we write a tonic. song about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, we had that chat that night, and that was a, a huge thing for you. I've still obviously. got the photo of you under the rug. Oh, really? Yeah. Crikey. Hmm. It was a night. Different rug to me. <laughs> it wasn't that Glad kind of you church. cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs> Massive night. You shared. After that, did you feel more comfortable? Do you think that sharing a small part of your life that that you've been holding so close for so long has helped you to be able to be more in touch with yourself, yeah. in the world, other people? I guess, you know, you and I first met on the end of boxing gloves, basically not building the crap out of each other, but... We, we met at a at a personal at a training sex, yep. uh, session. <laughs> Not and, looking at um, both of you, us now. Did you <laughs> and, uh, accidentally and, turn up there, Bernie? Yeah. No, well, I thought it was the pub. <laughs> we we had mutual friends at the time that were doing this thing, and Bernie started, and Bernie would get there, and you know the size of him, and he'd punch the bag, and the bloke would go two meters back, like holy shit. And then for some reason, one of the guys got me to come along. And I went right, you blokes, you punch as hard as each other, and obviously you've got shit to get off your chest or go for it. And we we did, you know, you'd go home with a bright Short red chest, chest and, mm. you know. But it was a venting session without words. Yeah. <laughs> and we became mates. And then for some reason on that night, the comfortability level got there. And I, and I haven't said this either, I, I, um, I've supported three really close people, blokes, through divorces. One was a guy that I moved in with just as he um, he was separating from his wife and he had a real bad time. I was 21, so I wasn't in the best space at the time. But we, um, yeah, we, we uh, I guess, helped each other. Again, it's another one of those things that people come along at different stages of your life. And then another mate who is a really good mate now went through it. So I'd been doing a lot of this sort of, you know, wouldn't say a counsellor. I mean, I remember taking Tone up to the top of Hunchback Hill and we were going, we, we ran up and at one stage I, I, I shit myself. I said, mate, there's a stampede. It sounded like these wild horses were coming to us. 
Turns out it was my heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to have a breather, and I said to Tone, right, just yell out over the whole of Wodonga just what you think of her. Just just get it off your chest and all that sort of stuff. And and I think over time it just developed that, you know, I guess my own way of trying to help people. Mm. And again, whether I'm good at it or not, but you've got to be able to listen. I don't think it's a matter of being um, good at it, mate. No, I'm not good at it. It's just giving. Well, it's you a are. Of taking- but it's that same thing. We we we're blokes, and we're not going to admit that we we're really good listeners, and and we can and here's we some can cookies. Get, let's sit down and just, have a glass of milk. Yeah, um, hard to say without mentioning names. I I just I've had an interaction with two blokes recently uh, in a social atmosphere. One of them. Um, found uh, a close friend um, after suicide and his younger brother knew the whole situation, what had happened. And after a couple of hours, the brother that found the, the guy, it was all planned for him to be found by this guy. He, I'll say, blurted out more to me in that time than his younger brother ever knew. And it was only four years ago that it happened. Mm-hmm. And the younger brother said to me the next day, he goes, he's never said any of that. Mm. H- how did you get it out of him? I said, I didn't. You were just there. I had a red wine and he had a beer, I think. But oh, I think it's listening. Mm. No, I know it's listening. It is, yeah, <laughs> You've it got is. to be able to listen. But oh, you don't ask questions of what was it like. No. Yeah. It was like, I think questions of... How'd you feel about that? Um, a lot you of know, we, we've talked about your dad, your brother, your brother-in-law, all that, you know, mm-hmm. and that's going external to what we're doing here today. But if people want to want to talk, they will if they feel comfortable. Mm. I, I learned learned something years ago. If someone asks you how your weekend was, it's because they did something good on the weekend that they want to tell you. <laughs> And if you now that'll probably get stuck in your heads mm. and think about it. What'd you do on the weekend, Bernie? And they tell you, and that's the end of the story, and you walk off and go, bloody built a really good fence, and I did, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. I only know that Bernie built a new fence because I drove past his house a couple of days later, and did I went crook on him for not asking me for help. But it is listening and being able to listen without prying. Um, I think it's the way you conduct yourself. In the time prior to that, if you conduct yourself as somebody who's non-judgmental, who is somebody who's able to listen without telling the whole world what they've heard from somebody, if you're a secret keeper that people can pick you as that secret keeper, they will share with you. They will allow themselves to open up mm. when they're ready. Yeah, yeah which is person- funny because the word I said before that I became judgmental. Yeah. So there's there's different parts yeah. of my life. But you're where, in a different, different space to then. Yeah. For whatever so reason. I totally admit for a portion of my life I was really judgmental and probably an arsehole. There were plenty of people who listen <laughs> to our points. podcasts who will say, what's Bernie doing that for? I know Bernie has been loud, obnoxious, very self-centred, very self- Circus. Yeah, crazy, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> But um, that was me in a lifetime ago, seemingly, uh, to me. And again, yep. it doesn't define us. We've spoken about that. People do change and evolve. But I've literally just met you in person today, Scott, 
and it's your aura as well. It's your openness. It's, you know, I don't know if you're a good listener because I don't know you well, but you you do give that air out of being friendly um, and, and being a great listener and being quite open. So I, I guess it's a personality thing, like you're mm. saying, Burn. It's the lead up to that. People make that assumption of, gee, Scott's a really great listener. He doesn't seem to be judgmental. And Probably I think the they're the people that people gravitate to. Yeah, um, and, and a result of probably having no friends for a couple of years there. Eh? It's terrible <laughs> as a young teenager. I mean, look back, you just drop the girls off at school and you look at a young bloke and think, now I hope he's doing all right. Mm. Um, yeah, so you, you adjust. You it's do, not just an adult adjust. thing, though, you know. We, we talk about we've got kids. All of us have got kids. And we sit and say to ourselves, do we listen to our kids enough? Do we do we practice what we preach? You know, do we take the time as, you know, or is that mum's job? From a father to father yeah. point of view, is that mum's job to be that shoulder for the kids to lean yeah. against? Or is that dad's? You, you obviously talk to your girls. And do you think that's a dad's job to have a good old chat to the kids? No, no. Um, we're, we're, we're really, I've, you know, two girls, I... Home's not a nudist camp, but you know you have to live and and get around and I guess you know, hopefully that you know they're comfortable with who I am and themselves as they're growing. You know they've got Linda, but we've you know we we talk. I think you have to as a as a father these days that you know hey mate I might not look the same as you, but I know what's happening to you, not necessarily what you're going through. And it's the, I guess, the appreciation as well. You've got to, you've got to realise that kids are, you know, they're called dependents for a reason. Mm. You know that that they depend on us. I watched a thing years ago. There's a, a a panel of kids or kids came in just like this and were asked. The parents were asked first, who, if you had, were allowed to invite anyone to dinner, who would you invite? You know, and the parents would rattle off. El McPherson, Michael mm. Jordan, you know, trying to impress whatever, everybody. All these sports people and whatever. And all of the kids' responses were um, mum, dad, my sister, my nan. The fame and fortune for the kids didn't exist because mm. the people they looked up to and the people the that they depended on right in front of them. That, that is mm. it. And I told Izzy the other night, you know what? I'll always be the first bloke you ever loved. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> but you hope that that, not, not the first one, that the, yeah, the yeah. longest love. Yeah. Um, so people have it differently. Oh, I've got mates that probably can't talk much to their daughters mm-hmm. or their kids, but I've got mates that probably do more of the talking. It's not a dad-daughter no. thing necessarily. No, no, I, dad-kids, yeah, that's why I said that. As you know, I've got just... two sons yep. and they are completely different um, and the way that we interact together is completely differently, how much we can talk to each other about different things and, um, you know, sometimes Kaz is the one that, that is the shoulder that they, well, the ear that they are talking to and, and sometimes it's me. So, And as a parent as and especially as a father, we, we take on the role of the – um, the provider and the and the protector, especially. Um, often there's not time or we don't make time to be in that precious present that we're talking about and just focusing 100% on the conversation that that child's having with us. Mm. We've we got so much going on in our heads, and that's not just a dad thing, I know that. But 
from my experience, that's really difficult to do, to get back to talk to your kids. Something that I think when I watch you interact with your kids, that they just look at you and you are engaged with them when you're talking to them and you, and you don't treat them as imbeciles. You give them the opportunity to grow in the conversations. It's very cool to watch. Mm. Yeah, and they're very, very different girls too. I guess there, there are times where I can get a tap on the shoulder by Linda and say, the girls are talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> that old thing, you, know, you blokes can't do two things at once. Yeah, I'm watching TV and ignoring you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> being aware, you know, I, yeah. I remember when we were first uh, trying to have kids and I said, let's just, you know, like, how cool would it be you could just manufacture a boy and a girl, twins, and that's it and we'll be done. Jesus, after Izzy was about two months old, that was it. <laughs> Anyone with twins, good on you. And I've always said I don't know how single parents do it, so and that's how we we have to be more of a team together. And, you know, um, we're not going to have any more children, so there won't be a son, so I've just got to be a, a, a girl dad, as they say. Mm. Absolutely love it. They love the saints. They wore their... Saints jumpers the other night, and you know, so you're teaching them resilience. Yeah, build them you know, up and, and have something crushed right, and pulled have out. A, from have a look them. at that, and then and that's what I say to a lot of people. I've I've from where I was as a an early teen, the underdog, you know that that person I was to then make different steps. I went to Yakandan and they hadn't won a premiership since 1964. So subconsciously, I've put myself in positions, and again, this is only three years ago where I've looked and gone, holy shit. You know, I moved into Wodonga, and, and rather than support Wodonga in the O&M, I supported the Raiders. I went to Yakandanda to play football two years later, a barrack for St Kilda. So, you know, that, that, I guess it's that hope of seeing success at the end. Sure. Don't jump on the bandwagon of the ones that resilience. Really. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So- there's, so the, the subconscious subconscious mind is amazing, which actually takes me back. I don't know if I have said before, but uh, in 2002, I went back to Colcan and played football and had my jaw smashed. 66 and more games at Colcan? I, was, I think it was about that, yeah. I don't. It wasn't no, a lot. Exactly, but about that. Um, in fact, exactly that. And the next year, I went back to Yakandanda, and to my dad's disgust, I played terribly. And he said, you don't back back into packs. You're not taking marks like you used to and you're not as tough as you used to be. So he took me to a hypnotist here in Albury. Not a, you know, cluck like a chook and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) It was we had over an hour of pre-game talk about what we wanted to get out of it and what, you know, dad was there. And I I got no votes in the club best and fairest in 2003. Yeah. And it's not a personal thing that about getting votes or best and fairest or anything like that, to me that means that I didn't contribute and I was assistant coach. So it was it was a bit of an eye opener and dad dad didn't like it and I was open to anything. After the hypnotherapy I don't remember anything of it, but the whole thing we wanted to get out of it was that you know, the Jonathan Brown back and back into the pack thing and all that. The next year, two thousand and four, I come runner up in the best and fairest and that mum just saw someone different. And I think, again, you go back to the, the guidance of your parents. Now, Dad, that was just something that Dad did, and we've spoken about it. Um, I've called 
other young blokes or other blokes in that have had broken jaws and just suggested it. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy that had never spent a lot of time with footy or after footy is Brendan Robertson, who's involved with, with the Guna. He asked one day, you know, how did you recover from that? Because we've got a young bloke here. And I just said, the hypnotherapy. Mm. So our subconscious mind is so powerful. You know, I'm, I'm not a spiritual person and all that sort of stuff, and um, I don't deny anyone if they are full believers. But something happened that day that changed me um, in my mind, and I went on with my everyday business of playing footy. And, there you go. Um, in that, <coughs> just another back, tool. Well, we hark back to the, the pulling a professional if you need help in some way. Correct. We talk about that physically with you, you know, getting your mindset changed back in back into the packs and all the rest of it. Or it's in the mental health journey where you're talking to counsellors or you're talking to physios or psychos or whatever, you want to, you know, any of the professionals in the industry. It's important to surround yourself with people who can make you a better version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is incredible. Hey, yeah. the swimming thing, when you were a kid, you isolated yourself in the pool. You still do, is it peer to pub? Yeah, and it's not going to happen this or next year. So you're crazy because enough to jump into the ocean, freezing cold water in Victoria. Oh, it's about 17 degrees on average down at Lawn. That's cold enough. The peer to pub's the biggest ocean swim in the world, or attended ocean swim in the world, 5,500 people, all congregate at lawn on the first weekend of January every year. And uh, through the Albury-Wodonga Triathlon Club, one of the guys said to me that he was going to do it. I thought, I've never really done an ocean swim. Hate spitting out salt water and the, the sand and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I grew up on the Billabong Creek, yeah. not the bloody beach. <laughs> so I went in the ballot. That was 12 years ago. And I got in and Stewie didn't. So I felt so guilty. But anyway, he went to lawn anyway because you have you know, if you're going to go and stay there and do the swim, you need to book. So he'd already booked before the ballot came out, and he just swam the pier to pub two hours before the pier to pub <laughs> was on. So he got his own time and did all that. But I did my eleventh in a row, eleventh pier to pub last year. After ten, you become you get a medal. Mm-hmm. And you become what's called shark bait. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I've never seen it, but it's the most amazingly organised event. Every one of the people that swim from, I think you got to be twelve, and there's eighty or ninety year olds that do the swim. They've all got a timing chip, and no, nothing misses a beat. It's just phenomenal. What's the purpose of the swim? What's the purpose of the event? My oh, question, many, yeah. many years ago, there was a few blokes having a drink at the Lawn Pub. I think it was the pub or the Surf Life Saving Club, and said, I could beat you in a swim from the pier back into the pub. So what started with three or four blokes, the next year it became 12 and 20 and 50, 100, and just kept going from there. Yeah, right. So now it's a big support for the Lawn Surf Life Saving Club, but it's... For me, it was sticking to something, you know, so I know that in a couple of weeks' time, so generally the start of November, then I just go hell for leather and start swimming. I'll go out to the waterhole at Yak and swim a couple of k's before going into work or go out after after dinner and do that and just something to, to aim for. And again, mm-hmm. it's a personal thing, swimming and Oh, I guess triathlon in in a whole. I mean, I'm, I don't look like a triathlete, but I can swim and run and ride a little bit. It's really good for your mind. 
you can ride, you know, I live in Barrandoo and I can ride out to the Weir and over the Pathanga Bridge and Talangata and back and you could have thought about a million different things. You can either be a lot better for it or think overthinking things, but it's it's great time with your head down in the water or riding with the wind in your face or not that I like running, but you know, just time to do that and everyone has their own way of of doing it. Well, you're real on in your head at the same time, aren't you? Yeah. You're putting yourself back into some perspective and you can sort your day and you're on your own and you've got the ability to calm yourself in that headspace so that you can just concentrate on that one thing, pedal down, pedal down, pedal down, or whatever you're doing when you're swimming. I don't know. I don't swim. I'm not very good at that. I'm a rock. Breathe. Well, that was probably going to be very helpful. <laughs> get, your, get your mouth and nose out of the water. That's, that's the easiest thing to do. I was, was going to say, you can give me any pointers. That might be a good thing. Have you ever, you talk about bike riding, have you ever ridden a reasonable distance? <laughs> yeah. Um, back in 2014 or late, two, or early, mid-2013, there was a guy that had a pub out at Yak. It was a, a friend of Peter Russell yes. uh, from Wodonga. And Pete's brother who everyone knows is Uncle Bob, um, had Down syndrome and um, was at um, the Murray Valley Centre for a long time. And he died at the age of 54. Beautiful little man. Anyway, this guy that was at the pub was bragging one day about riding a bike some fair distance or whatever. And Pete said, why don't, we, why don't you do it again? We'll drive to Sydney and you ride back and we'll raise some money. Anyway, this bloke never followed through with it. And Pete and I were having a beer it was early June 2013 and Pete was telling me he was pretty disappointed in this bloke that he hadn't gone through with it. I said, right, let's shake hands now. I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, what, what have I got to lose? 15 kilos? <laughs> 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 and, and we did. So we did a reconnaissance mission. We flew to Sydney and drove back and mapped everything out. And there was um, the Murray Valley Centre. The, the Russell family have raised a shed load of money for the Murray Valley Centre. Beautiful family in honour of a, a beautiful little man. We did it in February 2014, mm -hmm. left Sydney on the, the 18th or 19th of February. Because for those of you who are not in Australia listening to this, February is potentially our hottest time of the year. Yeah. So that, that so morning- 40-odd degree temperatures Celsius. Yeah. So that was a Wednesday morning. It was about 20 degrees in Sydney. Uh, it was- Sydney to Goulburn, the first stretch, just under 200 k's. Is that with the wind or against the wind? Well- Is that east-west or west-east? When uh, when we were flying up, it was really quick. The wind didn't have any- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Driving back, you know, didn't really, you know, you don't look too much. We were just mapping out different sections sure, of breaks yeah. and you know, where we we're going to have a break and all yeah. that. So that first day, you know, pretty good temperature to start off with. Yeah. Then the sun came out. Shit, better put sunscreen on. By the time I got to Goulburn, there was hail coming in sideways in, into my ears. Um, and then the next day was really, really hot. I think it got to about 36 degrees. And then by the end of that day, you're riding along. There's five crossings of the, um, I can't remember the name of the river now. But if you look out, when you're heading south back this way, you look out to your right into New South Wales, there's a, about five rows of 30 wind turbines mm -hmm. facing Albury-Wodonga. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was 195 k's from Goulburn to Gundagai, uh, 50 kilometre an hour winds. Now, I, 
I got up to, I think it was, I think my highest speed. Now, there's some big hills to come down there are. that way. A, that, you run through the range going that way. With a 50k k an hour wind against me, I was doing 79 k's an hour down the down the hill. <laughs> and as you do, I scared the shit out of mum before we left. Dad was dad was in the pilot car at the front again, huge support, and he wanted to do it the Come hell or high water, he was going to be in that front car making sure that you know, I had a Everything clear okay. path. Yep. <laughs> and I remember saying to mum, now she goes, is there anything you're really worried about? I said, yeah, that bit out of Goulburn getting towards Gundagai in that like second half of the day, there's there's a there's a 3.8K downhill stretch that I'm, I'm tipping I'm probably going to touch 100Ks in it. She said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you buddy there, put your brakes on. Yeah, what, go over the handlebars? Yeah. <laughs> but that whole trip was to raise money for a bus for the Murray Valley Centre. Yep. And at no stage, other than the fitness, that I make it about me. Like, I, I wanted to do it for, for Rusty because I felt like someone had let him down and, you know, Uncle Bob was just a, a beautiful little fella. And we um, we raised $45,000 over that, that journey. Truckies pulled up at, at Gundagai and just handed us 50 bucks. What are you doing? So I'm riding from Sydney to Wodonga and then to Yakandanda. How long's it taking it? So oh, we left Wednesday. We'll be there Saturday morning. And they'd hand over fifty dollars notes. That's <laughs> just, insane. Yeah, and the the break in that big long day on the the second day, uh, Goulburn the Gundagai. Um, we pulled up in a park, and it was right beside Valmere Education, which is the Murray Valley Centre of Yass, mm-hmm. and. People in wheelchairs, people with Down syndrome and acquired brain injuries. And it was like I got back on the bike and I couldn't see for the tears going, I've got to keep going here. I don't care about this wind. I don't care if it's uphill, downhill, whatever. It was a real reminder of what we were there for. Mm. Um, and it, I guess the, the pride came over and they were, hang on, we've still got to make it home and, and raise this money. And we had some super support. It was great. Yeah, so it was pretty crazy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but incredible that at that particular point in time where you were at a low in that journey. Yeah. Where you were knackered, clearly. Yeah. You know, what the fuck am I doing? I'm on this yeah. bike and this is just punching mm. into me every single day and I'm not getting any benefit out of this. What the hell am I doing this for? And you pull up outside the centre for people who you are supporting. Mm. I don't call it fortuitous or whatever you want to call it. That's phenomenal. The right people at the right time yeah. in your journey. And my, yeah, my best mate, Tone, was in the car with Dad, and we had a two-way. And because of the emotion that I was going through, you know, the, the the fight to the end it was, I'd just told them that the battery had gone flat, <laughs> that I couldn't hear what they were saying. So I not ever responded because, one, I wasn't a blubbering mess, but I wanted to concentrate. And it was again. Sure. It was one of those things. You know that resilience in your head. Mm. I I know this road. We've done it. We did it in a car. You know because you know they they, they were a great help. But at that point in time, I I didn't need it. Mm. Um, now we got back to Holbrook on the last night, and Jared Twitt was coaching and and just said to all the boys, it was pre-season for them, and took the hat around, and they presented with us as with just over a thousand bucks. Most of them didn't know me. Most of them wouldn't have known what the Murray Valley Centre was about. But because of that, Twitty was friends with the Russells that became, right, we're going to get together and do something because someone wants to make the world a better place. And all of a sudden, you've got all of these people wanting to help. 
It's a very and cool that's the thing. Big thing. Because and- not everyone can do that. Not everyone can do that journey that you've just done. Well, not just done, but that you did do. But they're happy to support that in some way. So if you can keep that conversation about talking to people and about what you're doing and how you're doing it, the, the support comes. It's astounding. And it Absolutely. might just be a, a $2 donation or it might be some sort of physical support that people can give. Mm. Um, the generosity of, of the world is incredible. It's incredible. When you're reaching out for a mm. purpose. And if that purpose is your self-development or if you're pulling you out of a hole or if it's for something bigger than you, which is what I think we should all achieve for, is for something that's bigger than us because what you leave behind is your legacy. And if you can leave behind multiple things that have benefited from you over the period of time, then that is everything. And that's not just your family. That's bigger than that. So, yeah, I, I, the generosity of the world comes through. really yeah. does. Mm. And to be involved with people who are, I hate, I hate the words less fortunate, but yeah, the Murray Valley Centre and the Belvoir Special School, uh, people don't know what they're about. Mm. And if you do get involved, you learn you learn a hell of a lot mm. about, not about the kids that go to Belvoir, but their parents, I guess digressing, but that's another thing that I am see their, their fundraising luncheon at the at the race course every year, which this year we didn't have. But that's led me to uh, to interview and have special guests like Lauren Jackson, Michelle Bridges, Sam Groth, People from all walks of life, mm. and each of them have their, their different stories. And this year was going to be Debbie Capetis, the owner of Winx. Now, the, the whole background is that she was going to, she was there as the owner of Winx, but she's got her own story as well. Mm. So, whether her dad was one of the Inghams of Ingham's Chickens, whether she was the owner of Winx, she's got a backstory. Mm. And that's where, where you want to get to with people. So what? We, we you, you've all got a a certain claim to fame or what you've done or what you're known for, but there's always something in the background that either makes you strive to be better or has made you better. Bernie Garvey has a story. Nadia Deneen has a story. Scott yep. Fraser has a story. We've all got a backstory somewhere along the mm-hmm. line that makes us who we are. And if we can capitalise on who we are to help somebody else's story, I mean, we benchmark ourselves, don't we? We look at uh, so-and-so who's got this and who's got that. But if we bench ourselves the other way, looking at the families of of um, of people that need the care of, of centres like the Murray Valley Centre, look at their lives. Benchmark yourself on their life and the struggle that they mm. potentially go through to on a regular basis and look at yourself and say, am I going that bad? If they go through that every single day, they wake up and that challenge is in front of them every single day. It does not go away. Have I got that much to worry about? Where's the stress level in my life? We come back to empathy again. So if you don't look, if you don't look outside of your box, Mm. if you don't look at other people's lives and what potentially they've got to do, and I don't mean go and live with them and find out exactly the intricacies of it all, but I mean just take the time, Mm. take a deep breath, and look sideways. Sometimes and hasn't the last nine months been the opportunity to look sideways and be positive? Yeah, okay? for sure. In yeah. the whole COVID thing, you know, um, I found termites in the side of the house. Did you? They chose them? our house to come to. Did you welcome? You no, know, there's them? a positive. <laughs> <laughs> I did see them out pretty quickly. But, um, it's it's been tough, you know, and to have kids homeschooling. I decided to go away and work so we could make ends meet. We closed our shop for 12 weeks and I went to Batlow 
and I removed fire-damaged trees as a job. And going up there and thinking, shit, our business is buggered, possibly. What's home life going to be like after all this shit? And I get up to Batlow and everything is black. And there's houses gone, businesses gone, people just in ruin. And you think, well, it's not that bad. <laughs> so every corner you go around, there's a positive. You know, you can fall over and break your ankle and have to be put in a cast for six months. Mm. But you might learn to draw or read or do something in that time. So I guess in the end, not in the end, I hope I'm a long way from the end, <laughs> but in finding out myself up to that three years ago point when, when, it, when I decided to talk about it, there were so many things I did as a result of not letting something get to me. Mm. Don't mind. Don't. You know, I still have times where you know, you've got to have a cry. You've got to. You've got to understand. If there's one about thing life, I can say to people is that you will be depressed in your life. Life is not a constant high. It never will be, except the fact that you are going to feel down occasionally. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and look for the next positive. Yeah, which seems to me to be the way that you've lived your life. Well, it is. You know, and going into business three years ago, and we've, you, know, you have a three- and a five-year plan, and then bushfires and COVID hit, and we're back to three years ago. Yesterday, we sold three campers mm-hmm. in a day. It's brilliant. And at 7.30, mum rings me and says a family friend's um, grandparents have died. She was 101, lived a great life. But I went from a high of my business we had a few celebratory drinks that night over dinner, and the girls are happy. We've sold a few campers, and then we hear that we called her uh, Nana Lee passed away. And it's there's everything is a leveler. Of course, it is. Mm. there are levelers everywhere, every day. But I guess the best thing is that the positives you got to take out of it. Mm. So to be knocked down and get back up again, yeah, you know, I do a song about that. Yeah. I like the tonic and gin one, but <laughs> uh, I don't see myself as a champion in terms of what I've uh, recovered from. Someone somewhere else is far worse off than you. Mm. Totally. You, know, you you talk to the people of the bushfires up at Corrion and Kudjiwar and you know, these, these guys are crying on my shoulder when I went back up to visit them on Australia Day uh, and a long weekend in March and... They're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we lost this, but but old mate up the road, he lost three sheds and all this sort of stuff. It's We're, we're a resilient bunch, mm. but you've got to be able to tell people that you're either not resilient at the moment or you have been or you will be. It, it, it's not a cliche. It hasn't become a cliche about you need to talk. Mm. And, you know, Bernie, I, I don't do Are You OK Day on Are You OK Day. It's... The day or a couple of days before, and I said to Bernie this year, I've got 60 mates in my phone that I would send a message and you're gauged by your mates of how they respond. And out of the 60, 54 of them responded within six hours of a text of, and it wasn't, are you okay? It was just my story of how I've suffered and succeeded through this whole last nine months, but hoping that everyone else was right. And the other six got back to me within a couple of days because they're just non-phone or text blokes. Mm. And they all had something to say. It wasn't just, yep, I'm good. It's, yep, I'm good after this. A couple of them called into my shop the very next day or the day after. You know, it's 
we've got to get it out there. And mm. I, I love the fact that there's no stigma anymore <laughs> that, you know, we can we can talk about the loss of someone, whether it's a, a close family member or someone else, with your mates, and have a bit of a have a bit of a cry. We've all got mates that that won't cry, but if they can talk about it, it's bloody don't have to it's cry. bloody good. Certainly not cry. Hey, if we could give you a big billboard, yeah, no. If we <laughs> if we if we could give you a big billboard that everybody could see, apart from buy from Aubrey Wodonga camper trailers, what would your message to society say? I've told Linda and the girls at my funeral if they're still around the the when the coffin's wheeled away. I don't want a church service, but I want the song "Don't Worry, Be Happy" played because I reckon if everyone, um, you know, hopefully it's a celebration of my life, not my death, that they'd go and have a few beers, and it'd annoy the shit out of everyone that they'd just be sitting there going, <laughs> <laughs> just whistling the, the tune head. for ages, and it's like. Mm. Yeah, you know, he's still with us. Yep. So don't worry, be happy. Linda gets a shit sometimes because I always say, don't worry about it. Someone somewhere else is far worse off than us. So, yeah, I know it's not original, but don't worry, be happy is It'll probably be original. That. It's what you yeah. might like to put on there for the world. Scott, we always end each episode with uh, six quick questions and the answers are getting weirder and <laughs> weirder as we go on. So... Someone of your character, I can't wait to hear your response. So here we go. Whiskey or rum? Whiskey. Text or call? Call. Giving or receiving? Giving. Ask Linda. Facebook or Instagram? I'll go back to that one. If it's receiving whiskey. (laughs) 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 But I've taken it upon myself to give whiskey now, and that's really good. Okay. That's that's a different response. Bernie interrupted. Uh, Facebook or Instagram? Uh, Instagram. High school or adult life? Adult life by mile. Scrunch or fold? Fold. (laughs) Fold. Scott, thank you so much to coming on FYI and, and sharing your journey and... I guess the biggest thing I got out of that was your vulnerability. You're prepared to put yourself out there and just a short story of strength and resilience. You say you weren't a champion footballer, but obviously you're a champion fella. Well done. I've tried. And, and when I heard your uh, your podcast was FYI, I was telling a mate, and he look, he was joking. He said, what's FYI stand for? And I said, knowing Bernie, it's probably stands for fuck you're incredible. <laughs> so I don't know what the acronym was to start with. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with that. You guys are incredible by doing this because I, I really think I really appreciate people like Wayne Schwass that are doing the, the pucker up thing yep. and, um, you know, the Black Dog Institute, the, the Black Dog ride that Bernie's involved with. Um, I know this is the end, but I just want to tell a story. We, we go to the Henty Field Days every year, Linda and I and, and the girls, and we exhibit our stuff and sell our camping wares. And we invite Bernie along because he's a finance guru if anyone needs his help. But Bernie brought along all the black dog ride stuff. Now you're in amongst all these farmers that are mm. going through a pretty tough time. Our stand was bloody popular because we sell really good camping gear and products and stuff. But we were getting farmers coming over and looking at the stand of Bernie's black dog ride stuff and they'd have a chat. Mm. And I knew one bloke, uh, a farmer, and I'd said to him, how are you going? 
He goes, yeah, good man, yeah, right, yeah, we'll be right, Christmas coming up, got the kid to do this, that. I said, no, how are you really going? And he welled up and he said, well, just before I come here this morning, I opened the gates to the wheat paddock because at least the sheep will survive on that. So, again, you look at it and go, someone somewhere else is far worse off than yeah. you. So mm. it's perspective and we'll all get through it together. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Scott. Awesome to be here. Thank you very yeah. much.